Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you once again in the year 2021. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again here in this new calendar year, and so glad that all of you out there can be joining us once again as we are looking back once again on the past 12 months that was the dumpster fire of a year calling itself 2020. Yes, this is our part two of the 2020 year in review. This week, we are going to cover some of the other stories that came out in the year of 2020 uh, that may have been overshadowed by everything else. We took last week as an opportunity to talk about the big stories. These are the other stories, the lighthearted ones, the silly ones, the ones that you may have missed, may have entirely forgotten about, may have been entirely overshadowed by, or just ones that uh, make you shake your head. Yeah, and uh, this week I'm Dennis, the man who will never understand the how, why, and huh of things going viral. <laughs> well, I think that's just going to happen with uh, age, too, but uh, th- there's probably a reason, something that has uh, precipitated and kind of uh, been the genesis for your reaction. Yes, and now, just to, to clarify, given the times we are currently living in, I would just like to say this is not a COVID-related reference. Yes, I can sort of understand basic germ theory. I'm reasonably reasonably intelligent. I can sort of vaguely understand how germs get spread from person one to person two. Got it. That's not the type of viral I'm talking about. The type of viral I'm talking about is, you know, internet viral. You know, when things just, for some reason, catch on as a trend. And the latest one that's... I'm Now, granted, I might be very behind the times and you know, not quite with it because, you know, as we've established many times over the past, well, 14 years that this has been a podcast, we are not the youngest people anymore. (laughs) So, um, forgive me if I'm not totally hip with it, but apparently the thing that's popular right now is, um, sea shanties (laughs) on TikTok. (laughs) Yes, some of the, uh, you know, oldest forms of uh, recorded music being uh, utilized now on the newest of social media platforms. Not even recorded music. <laughs> sea shanties predate recording. Um, as far as I know, I mean, ba- like they literally come from when people would do, um, you know, have to live on the sea for months at a time and have to find ways to entertain themselves and those would usually come in the form of a jaunty sea shanty, which would be literally just describing what you see or describing what you're hoping for or happening or whatever you're doing. Like yeah, the re- one that I retelling s- a tale or whatnot. Specifically, the video I saw was, um, I think it was called when will the Weller man come or something, which was basically as far as I can understand it, it's some, um, old New Zealand based, um, sea shanty from the mid 19th century from basically based on a ship called the Wellerman, which was a whaling ship. And I guess the song is saying from the perspective of um, whalers on this ship who, you know, would often be out away at sea for months at a time. But the, the, the crux of the song is that, you know, uh, no, sorry, the, the Wellerman is not the, the, the whaling ship, whatever ship these guys were on, I think it was an unnamed ship. And the Weller man was supposed to be the supply ship that comes out to bring them supplies. That's what it was. Yeah. Sorry. Um, anyways, 
it's just called When Will the Weatherman Come to bring us spices tea, not spices tea and rum, um, something tea and rum, like to bring us sugar tea and rum. When will the Wellerman come? Or, you know, someday the Wellerman will come or something like that. Anyways, not really a relevant song anymore. Whaling's not really a career most I know anyone that has. <laughs> and yeah. And it's even like all of the old language that doesn't make sense anymore is intact. Like, like when the tonguing is done, then we'll take our leave and go, which I had to look up also what that meant, which apparently in whaling terms, you know, the, one of the last things you do when you've, you know, slain a whale is to cut its tongue out and take that because I guess that's one of the last things you do after you get all the blubber and stuff. And then that's the sign that you're done whaling. (laughs) But the, the crux of this song is that they're never going to be done, done whaling because this Wellerman ship is never going to come and they're out of supplies and they're constantly looking for this whale or whatever. Anyways, complicated setup to basically the long and the short of it is some people on TikTok started singing random, this one in particular, I saw like a bunch of remixes and stuff of just some, I think Irish guy maybe singing a song by himself. And I guess a feature on TikTok is you can layer yourself over top of other videos, I guess, so you can do duets with people and stuff. But it turned into this big, ridiculous, like, 12-part harmony thing where someone was playing violin and you had, like, a chorus of, like, people with deep bass baritone voices and stuff singing this song. And it was admittedly awesome, but (laughs) I don't understand how that suddenly became this, you know, as popular as it did. I wonder if this uh, newfound popularity and uh, regard for sea shanties is just kind of the next step in the evolution of uh, hipsterness. It could be. It could very well be. Uh, and I mean, hipsters, uh, the, the stereotypical hipster, uh, you know, they're into, you know, things, uh, that are old, things that are kind of anachronistic, uh, you know, just don't make sense in the modern times, uh, uh, you know, wearing such things as like wool caps and whatnot, uh, and which was a popular adornment of whalers and, uh, sailors uh, back in the 17th, 18th, and I guess early, you know, early to mid 19th centuries because it's get, gets really freaking cold out on the ocean. Yeah. So, so uh, and I mean, you know, look, the, uh, the sailors in those maritime times, they, like to smoke on their uh, old timey tobacco pipes. Hipsters, they have their vapes. Yeah, though, if they really wanted to be true hipsters, they would also be using tobacco pipes. True, and putting that into their lungs instead of uh, whatever dyes and coloring and flavor agents and sugars and such. <laughs> yeah. So I wonder, I mean, this is the popular thing, but as we know, social media in particular has made uh, trends just kind of, you know, come and go with with such uh, speed these days that uh, after, you know, sea shanties, what is the next old thing to become popular again? I have no idea. <laughs> Where does it go from here? What's the, what's the next thing? I don't know. I can't even imagine because I never thought there a day would come when sea shanties would be sung aloud by the youth of the day. Yeah. You and me both, my friend. You and me both. I mean, sea shanties weren't even popular when we were young, so I'm just really out of my element here. No, like, it... Yeah, 
they say some things skip a generation, but I feel like sea shanties. <laughs> they say she. I, I would imagine sea shanties skipped more than one, two, five, ten generations, maybe in popularity. At least ten. That's our starting point. Yeah. Uh, where it goes from here, I don't know. Now, that being said, uh, as you and I are just kind of talking about the ridiculousness of sea shanties becoming popular on, on TikTok and other social media, it's not like sea shanties are bad or unenjoyable. No. No, and that's the, that's the kind of amusing thing to me. It's like, it's not something I would have sought out personally, but like after seeing it done, it's like, oh yeah, these are pretty sweet songs. I don't really understand what the reference is to some of these things. I have to look up a lot of stuff like, what the hell is the Weller Man? What what does what does when the tonguing is done mean? Like what does that mean? Like oh okay, it's not a gross. Anyways, yeah, <laughs> it's okay. Got it. Fine. But like they're good songs. Like they're they're fun, upbeat. They all have like a nice kind of like yo ho ho and a bottle of rum kind of like <laughs> thing to them. So it's like oh okay, there's there's spirited music. So. Yeah. They are spirited music, and most often when they're performed, uh, they are great opportunities in the video you saw for multi-part harmonies, for just layers and layers of vocals to come, and that's where you can get some really good power going on in the performance of the song. Yeah, and like, the thing I think that kind of got me the most is just seeing a bunch of like, I'm just going to say young people in, you know, various manners of... I would say hipster dress. It's probably not hipster dress. Maybe it's actually popular these days. Again, I'm an increasingly old person. I have no idea what I'm talking about. So, <laughs> um, yeah. But people dressed in a certain way who singing songs that you wouldn't expect them to be singing, like people that look kind of like Billie Eilish singing like 18th century whaling songs is like not necessarily the thing I would expect to go viral. Hence, Going all the way back to my nickname this week, the man who will never understood the how, why, and huh of things going viral. <laughs> uh, it's true. And uh, I think as uh, perhaps you have made the comment either on this program or just to me off air uh, in past is that as time goes on, uh, we become more and more dependent, or at least our generation, yours and mine generation, and people of similar ages to us, become more and more just dependent and reliant on nostalgia for our, I guess, entertainment, just kind of our uh, touchstones for existence and whatnot, because the world just has changed so much around us uh, through the yes. course of our lives that it's just harder to keep track and keep an understanding of things. Exactly. Sea shanties on social media being, you know, one of those confounding factors that we will never truly understand or make sense of. And it will come and go so fast that we'll never have the opportunity to truly understand what went on. It will simply be a moment in time. Exactly. But with the reliance on nostalgia brings us to our first of three ludicrous topics as we get to our uh, year in review part two in earnest. Uh, we have three ludicrous topics and then some other uh, gaming related stories to come up. Again, these are the ones that uh, the stories that you may have missed. Maybe you didn't hear about uh, or maybe you heard about but forgot because there was some existential crisis going on at the time, as seemed to happen through most of 2020 into the overtime that is 2021. Yes. The, yes. The, the extra innings that we're currently in. Yes. This is the fourth period of 2020. Uh, 2020 going to be one of those playoff games, playoff hockey games that just never ends. It goes for yeah. seven periods. It's going to a shootout. <laughs> 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 or not. 
That there is a timely reference. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's a joke with layers. Mm-hmm. But uh, speaking of nostalgia, one of the, the trends we saw through the course of the past 12 months was the return, or at least announced returns, of many different cartoons that existed in the 90s, went away, and then were announced as coming back. There was several of them. This wasn't just a one-off of, you know, one here, one there. There was about, I think, six of them, six or seven of them that came out through the course of 2020. No, yeah, exactly. Uh, it really started kind of in the, in July when the first thing, I mean, there might have been other things that we just kind of missed or forgot about, but, or forgot to pay attention to or weren't as important, but whatever the case, the, the first thing that we remember happened right at the beginning of July when it was announced through Comedy Central that they're bringing back Beavis and Butthead. And they're not just bringing it back. They're bringing it back with Mike Judge. Yes. So, the you know, it's been said that reboots don't work if the original people aren't involved. Thus making, you know, if they're going to call it a reboot, maybe you don't call it a reboot. Maybe it's just a continuation. This is actually just more seasons of Beavis and Butthead is what – is my best understanding of it since it's Mike judge. I think he's probably getting as many of the original character actors, voice actors as he possibly can back on board, including himself, obviously, who's still there. Um, he's, he's still around and he's the voice of both Beavis and butthead. Uh, and yeah, if he's involved, he's doing stuff. They're not going to change the art style. It's just going to be more Beavis and Butthead, which is good. Exactly. And this isn't the first time, actually, that Beavis and Butthead came back. It was brought back for uh, uh, a round of, what, eight or ten episodes about ten years ago. Yeah. And I remember I remember when it first came back. Before it came back, I was skeptical if Beavis and Butthead would still work because even at that time, culture had changed so much in that at least it was it was still brought back by MTV, who was the original – network that showed Beavis and Butthead and the big, a big part of the show originally for those of you who are too young to remember, um, was that Beavis and Butthead, there would always be some story element going on. Like every episode was, you know, some story thing. Like, you know, there was episodes about them doing various stupid things around town, but then interspersed in the episodes, because each episode is only about five minutes long and they had about 15 minutes per episode time space to fill. The rest of the time was just basically Beavis and Butthead basically doing, they were the original reaction videos. Basically, if you think about it, it was Beavis and, well, between Beavis and Butthead and Mystery Science Theater 3000, it's kind of, they kind of formed the very loose ancestral basis for the modern reaction video. And they would, but they would be, their whole crux was watching music videos. So all of, any music video, because believe it or not, MTV, much music in Canada, there used to be most of the day was just broadcasting music videos. You could turn on the TV to this channel and depending on the time of day, you'd get a different type of genre, different type of music playing, but it was all music videos. It was, and it uh, was how music was uh, conveyed in the in the medium of television, which is kind of wild to believe now when you can just kind of call any video up on YouTube or whatever other platform, um, you know, you could be exposed to so much more music, so a uh, much wider array of music, uh, just 
And I know I'm sure you did as well. I did this, but just leave much music on in Canada. That's where we are. Or if you're in the States, MTV, leave it on for like a day, perhaps even an afternoon and just, yeah, that's your soundtrack. That's your background music. You're going to hear a lot of different stuff. And then Beavis and Butthead would just kind of rag on videos that MTV would play. Yeah. And that was the whole thing. So I was kind of skeptical back to my original point of the 2010 ish reboot of Beavis and Butthead. I say reboot. It's just a continuation back to that continuation of Beavis and Butthead. I, because at that point they were literally playing nothing but reality shows. And I think very little has changed in way of that. Like it's different slate of reality shows, different slate of that type of programming on MTV. But at the time it was like Jersey shore and things of that ilk, the te- you know, teen moms and things like that. But it surprisingly just kept working because instead of just commenting on the music videos of the time, Beavis and Butthead would just comment on clips from these various shows and it worked just as well. The format was seamless. So it, it did. And I think uh, there's something about uh, perhaps those characters that as we are seeing it, and I mean, the, the real test will be how the uh, new upcoming seasons of Beavis and Butthead work out, but there could very well be a timeless element and quality to Beavis and Butthead, given that they are just, you know, slacker teenagers. Yeah, slacker teenagers who are potentially a leftover remnant of Generation X culture. But I think it's very, it becomes very obvious that, you know, with each new generation, as you reach a certain age and then can relate to watching Beavis and Butthead, you remember people like that from when you were growing up. And that's sort of a constant. Like people just kind of pigeonholed it in with Generation X at the time because that's when it came out and Mike judges of that generation. But it resonated with us. We all kind of knew dumb people like that growing up. And I'm sure with, you know, people, you know, people our age having children who are now coming to age as well, like, they're also probably can relate to people who were dumb like that in the high school as well. So it, it's like a cycle and it, I think it'll, as long as Mike judges around to do it, I think Beavis and Butthead is basically almost an evergreen thing. Uh, it could quite possibly be. Uh, now the announcement was that Comedy Central ordered two seasons, two new seasons of Beavis and Butthead, which I guess would qualify as seasons nine and ten, since the MTV one from about ten years ago is qualified as, or and counted as season eight of the series. So yes, there's, uh, also the potential for other spinoffs and specials under this deal. And as you said, Mike Judge is back to back on board with this. He's writing, he's producing, he's doing the voices. And in the press release, uh, he said, uh, one of his blurbs was quote, it seemed like the time was right to get stupid again, <laughs> which I'm, I'm here for, I'm here for. And I know in reading and, and hearing Mike judge speak in interviews uh, over the past several years about Beavis and Butthead, he always had a desire to return to that franchise, to that property, not just franchise, that property, because he thinks there's still, you know, stuff to write, stories to tell with Beavis and Butthead. The problem was MTV, they have a 50% ownership stake in the property, or uh, that is Beavis and Butthead. Mike Judge has the other 50%. So I guess the real way this deal came about was that Comedy Central is one of the, uh, I guess, channels in the same family as MTV. Yeah. And so that's what helped make it work. Yeah. But without getting caught too much in just the Beavis and Butthead, um, 
specific nostalgia. <laughs> here we are just, you know, getting, you know, you, you said it's, it's easy to get lost in nostalgia and here we are just kind of going on and on about one thing. There, Beavis and Butthead was not the only show. Like the next day after Beavis and Butthead was announced that they'd be coming back on, that was July 1st, July 2nd, news came out that there was a Clone High reboot in the works at MTV Studios, which is, Clone High, not as old as Beavis and Butthead, but still a good 10 plus years old at this point. F- 14, fi- actually, I think 15. it's 15, 16 years old at this point. It, yeah, it is. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with Clone High, that's a cry and shame. You need to do yourself a favor and check it out on YouTube or whatever other means where you can watch the episodes. Yeah. I, I can confirm, actually, I can confirm the whole series is available on YouTube. Whether it's officially available on YouTube, I don't think it actually is, but you can find every episode on YouTube and it's totally worth watching. I actually rewatched it just a few months ago and it still holds up. It's still only what, 13 episodes, isn't it? Uh, I, yeah, or it might only be 10 episodes. No, no, it's 13 episodes. I think it's 13 episodes. I think you're right. Yeah. So 13 episodes, you can easily get through that in like a day or two if you're taking your time with it. But it is the show that Phil Lord and Chris Miller did when they first got out of college. They became friends through college, realized they had a certain kismet as uh, writing funny things together. And that's what they did as their first project to really get the ball rolling on their Hollywood careers. Yeah. Of which now they're kind of like... They're kind of up there, big, important filmmaker guys now, in case you're not aware. You know, they've had a huge string of successful comedy movies, like 21, 22 Jump Street, um, the Lego movie, uh, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, chance of meatballs and, and a number, numerous other movies as well that they've been involved with, either individually or together. But yeah, Clone High, it's, it says reboot. I don't know if that's actually if it's actually going to be a reboot or if it's going to be a continuation, hard to say. Hopefully it's a continuation because as we know, the series ended on a cliffhanger, but if it's a reboot as well, it could potentially be another evergreen thing where the idea of just, you know, um, historic clones of various famous people who are, you know, no longer with us resurrected and put in the same high school using the tropes of the day, Etc. Like back in, you know, the original Clone High was basically parodying things like Dawson's Creek at the time. But I guess these days it would be parodying things like what, what would be the, I don't even know, Riverdale maybe? I don't know what the popular thing of now would be. Yeah, it'd be a, a dark and more gritty uh, teenage soap opera. Yeah, something like that. But yeah, it could also be another evergreen thing depending on who's involved. Hopefully they get the original voice cast back involved because... Everyone was great, though I, I could see the character of Gandhi being maybe given to someone else, given the current climate and stuff, but which is fine. There's plenty of talented people who could pull it off as well, but yeah. So this is actually a, a, a production that's being overseen and with the input of Phil Lord and Chris Miller, along with their uh, co-creator, Bill Lawrence, who himself went on to create shows like Scrubs or create a show like Scrubs and other things. Uh, but they aren't being directly day-to-day involved because they've kind of become too big and too important and too in demand for that. Yes. So instead, uh, the showrunner for this new version of Clone High is going to be uh, Erica Rivenola or Rivenola. Uh, whose name I'm sure I just butchered and I apologize, but she was actually a writer on the original series 
And she's going to co-write the pilot with Phil Lord and Chris Miller to kind of get the ball back rolling. Now, that being all said, there's no series order. There's no announced home for this project yet. So it's just kind of something that's been announced as being in development at MTV Studios, but they haven't put it anywhere quite yet. Yeah. So, and still waiting on word for that. But yeah, things continued you know, into August, there was a announcing of a Ren and Stimpy. S- same kind of idea, though, with Ren and Stimpy. You know, it's uh, it's going to be on Comedy Central, but not really a lot of other information was released about this. John Chris Felusi not being involved in that one, though, which is um, – we talked about it at the time, but I think our general consensus is good. Like, our general consensus is John Chris Felusi can kind of uh, walk off a bridge – uh, yes, take a long walk off a short pier, uh, pound sand, uh, you know, those sorts of, uh, you know, more pleasant ways of, uh, being mean and whatnot. Cause John Chris Felusi is a piece of shit. Yeah, not a good person. He is um, not a good person, but at, uh, now in the credits of this new series, he will still be accredited as, and incorrectly accredited as the creator of Ren and Stimpy. He is. Yeah. But no creative input, input, no financial remuneration, nothing. So he's not going to actually get any benefit other than his name showing up as a creator for this. So, yeah, he's not going to be involved with writing, nothing. So it's, it's unclear, it's really unclear actually what form this is going to take because, you know, the original characters, like the original show was a very unique and visually striking show that had its own style. But, I mean, it kind of influenced the whole – the next generation of Nickelodeon cartoons. So, you know, there, I'm sure there's no shortage of people who could, you know, hold up the the visual style of this. But it'll be very interesting to see what the show turns into because it's not clear what level of – like, it's not clear if John Chris Felusi with Ren and Stimpy, to me anyways, was on the level of like a Mike Judge for Beavis and Butthead. He probably was, but – I'm not, it's, it's, it's not clear. And also to the, I guess the original kind of to compare it to Beavis and Butthead as well. Um, Ren and Stimpy also did have an attempt at a, uh, a revitalization, a reboot as well in the early 2000s, um, back on Spike TV. Um, back and that when was a disaster. This, oh, it was a disaster. It was just, it was a, terrible show it was just it was a shitty show it was terrible it was called the adult party hour i believe it was called uh ren and stimpy's adult party cartoon yeah and it was uh, basically spike tv used to be known as uh the nashville network they rebranded trying to uh garner a more male-centric uh demographic and so they uh you know did things and had programming to try and appeal to that demographic and they actually in that time when they initially rebranded, had a slate of about four or five animated series, some of which yep. were actually pretty good. Gary the Rat was real real solid. Yeah, Gary the Rat was good. Stripperella, not so good. Um, there was Ren a, and Stim- a yeah. Good. yeah, Ren and Stimpy um, was on there and uh, was a... Uh, it was John Christopher Lucier having full creative control and uh, obviously didn't work out. I think only four episodes ended up making it to air. Well, I think there was outcry too, because I think they went really far with a lot of like unneeded explicit sexual references to things that, you know, they were kind of better left to sort of hinted at before. And you don't really need, like, it, it's kind of like, 
I, what I think it was, was people's childhoods being ruined, which, you know, it's fun to skirt that line, but you shouldn't actually step over it. <laughs> it it's true. So, uh, hopefully this will be a better incarnation of Ren and Stimpy. No word if Billy West is going to return to the voices of Ren and Stimpy. Uh, maybe it'll be a new voice actor. We don't know. We just know it's something that's in development and that Comedy Central has uh, approved it as a series, but we really do not know much more beyond that. Similarly, uh, we don't know much more about this next new take on a classic 90s cartoon. This one, I doubt, in fact, I'm going to say 100%, will not be destroying people's uh, childhoods. Yeah. This one is the new version that was announced at the end of October of Tiny Toons Adventures coming back in a new series called Tiny Toons Luniversity. Yeah. Um, being produced by, or returning on HBO Max, which, you know, HBO Max... You might think, oh, HBO, it's going to be super dark and gritty. Just remember, HBO also owns Sesame Street. So just the thing to keep in mind. Um, yeah, they're, I guess the, the, again, you said not really a lot of details came out about it, but as best we can tell, it's going to be the, the Tiny Toons characters that we remember, but they're a little bit older and they're professors at, Tiny Toons Luniversity now because enough time has passed that they're adults, I suppose, or they've gone to Luniversity. They, they might be studying at Tiny Toons Luniversity. We saw a little bit uh, from time to time in the original Tiny Toons Adventures cartoons of them actually studying uh, studying how to be a tune and tune antics and uh, tune comedy at Tiny Toons Luniversity. Or no, it was Acme Luniversity. Yeah. Where we earn our tune degree. Yes, Exactly. But, uh, yeah, not a lot of details came out about it, but it was announced there was a thing coming down the pipe. And then, you know, around the same pedigree as or time period as Tiny Toons Adventures, um, Disney had their own few cartoons. But I think that the one that maybe might have been the closest in tone was Darkwing Duck. And it was also announced that there was a Darkwing Duck reboot in the works in November for Disney+. Plus. Indeed, and similarly, uh, not much uh, detail given on that report or in that press release either, just the fact that it's in early production. Uh, we don't know if it's going to have the old voice actors, if it's going to have new voice actors, but we do know it's at least being co-produced by uh, Evan Goldberg and Seth Rogen. Yeah, which is very bizarre and interesting to me. So I wonder if it's going to try and, you know, hew more closely to that uh, early 90s aesthetic and feel of the uh, original Darkwing Duck series, given that Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg, they're kind of our age. And they would have watched the original series and kind of, you know, know what it was all about and quite likely and quite obviously enjoyed it enough to work on the new project. Well, exactly. Yeah. So this is, I mean, it's a surprise, but also kind of not a surprise that Disney would order a new Darkwing Duck series. Uh, they had a great deal of success with the new incarnation of DuckTales that I think ran for three seasons with David Tennant as uh, the voice of Scrooge McDuck and uh, just a whole slew of voice actors. And actually a lot of people with ties to the Doctor Who universe doing voices on the uh, new DuckTales as well. But through that new DuckTales series, they reintroduced Darkwing Duck as a character, and uh, so we'll see if that's the DuckTales version. Is it 
the 90s version? Is it a new, entirely new version of Darkwing Duck? Uh, when this series comes out eventually to Disney Plus, which again, brings me back to a point I made a couple of weeks ago on this program. There's too much to watch. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah. And those are just shows coming down the pipeline. There's actually uh, some 90s nostalgia that actually made it to air back in November. Yeah, which I still haven't watched yet because, as you said, too much to watch. But it's definitely on the plan for me to watch. It's just, unfortunately, Hulu in Canada is not really a thing. Um, But, yeah, in November uh, on Hulu, the reboot of Animaniacs premiered, which if you don't remember that – Basically, Steven Spielberg, you know, was was very much involved, and Hulu managed to negotiate the Animaniacs on Hulu. New episodes of the Animaniacs. Not even real. I, I'm not even going to call it a reboot. It's just it's a continuation because for Steven Spielberg to be involved, he said you can't change really anything about the original formula. It has to stay what it was because it was kind of perfect the way it was. I mean, it, it was. The Animaniacs uh, characters were kind of created to harken back to some old-timey, classic, zany Warner Brothers cartoons from, like, the 50s. Yeah, but, you know, I've only ever seen the previews and, you know, a couple of uh teaser videos and stuff put out for Animaniacs, but it seems to match the original's tone almost exactly in terms of rhythm, writing style, pacing type of jokes and everything. So it... It looked like it was going to be good. I, I have managed to see one, maybe two episodes of the uh, this new version of it or the new seasons of it. And uh, from what I've seen, same energy. Yeah. So it is worth your time if you have a means of watching it. Now, what premiered in November of Animaniacs was just uh, one season of 13 episodes. There's going to be a second season of 13 more episodes coming at some point in 2021. Anything beyond that remains to be determined, as it was only a two-season order that was announced uh, back in 2018. So uh, even still, hopefully there's more than just the two seasons. But uh, a thing to know if you investigate watching it, it's... The, the Animaniacs, so you're going to have the Warner Brothers and the Warner Sister Dot, and then uh, Pinky and the Brain. Yes. And that's it for the old characters returning. Yeah. Uh, the old ones, uh, uh, like Slappy the Squirrel, uh, the Good Feathers, and things like that that uh, you remember from the original series do not carry over into this new one, which is unfortunate, but uh, maybe they'll return down the line. Although Good Feathers, I can see not having a place. Yeah, exactly. So that is, uh, that's what, six, six or seven 90s cartoons that were announced to be coming back through the course of 2020, or in the case of Animaniacs, actually returning in 2020. So there were some bright spots, huh? It wasn't all bad. You know, yeah. just, uh, so yeah, uh, but you know, it wasn't all bad, but you know, nostalgia is a hell of a drug, isn't it? Yes, nostalgia is a hell of a drug. And um, when it's taken correctly, it can be pretty effective. However, a company that really hasn't quite got the dosage correct is Atari. And I say company very loosely. 
Yes, I can, I can feel your air quotes from here as we continue to record remotely. And I think at this point I will jump in and clarify that the Atari we are talking about is not the original one from the 70s into the 80s, not the creators of Pong. That Atari is long since dead. The Atari we are curring, currently speaking about and going to speak about for the next few minutes is the, uh, uh, one based out of France known as Atari SA. They are the ones I, uh, I, I, only half-jokingly referred to as the dead skin mask-wearing husk that calls itself Atari. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're they're literally just a company that owns the license to the name, and they do weird things with the name. Or at least in 2020, they really established that that was the year that they are in control of the name, and they are doing weird things with the name. So it started off pretty early in 2020, uh, basically the end of January, when they announced that they had signed a deal with an Arizona-based development, uh, property development company, uh, to develop Atari-branded hotels in eight cities across the United States. Yeah. I don't know why. I don't know who exactly asked for this. I don't know who wanted this, but eight Atari-branded hotels. Now, apparently these would be hotels that would have rooms, but they would also have things like esports facilities, restaurants, movie theaters, meeting spaces, uh, your usual bells, whistles, and accoutrement that you would find in a hotel. In the press release said, uh, the press release said that they would provide a unique experience for both business and family travelers. I call bullshit on that because those are two entirely different demographics with entirely different needs. Yeah, exactly. You cannot provide both and satisfy both customers and both audiences well enough. You, you, you're half measures. Do one or the other. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> anyways, whatever their case is, um, I don't actually know if I ever saw any completed hotel pictures or if anything I ever saw was literally just concept photos. There were concept photos that were released and they kind of made it look like something from Blade Runner. Yeah, they looked cool. I'm not going to lie. They did look cool. They did look cool, but would you ever stay in one? I don't know. (laughs) If the price was right, maybe, but I don't know. Uh, The eight cities announced that uh, would be getting them would be Phoenix, Austin, Texas, Chicago, Denver, Las Vegas, San Francisco, San Jose, and Seattle, Washington. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and say probably not going to work in Vegas given the amount of hotel rooms in Las Vegas. Yeah, and given, you know, the other themes, I mean, location is incredibly important in Las Vegas, and I would say most of the important real estate is already kind of taken up. Uh, yeah. And if it hasn't been, then uh, you're paying a premium to get us, uh, buy a site from someone else on the strip and that's not likely to happen. So no. good luck with that. And also too, we'll see how the, uh, you know, current pandemic has, uh, disrupted those plans because, uh, the hospitality industry utterly devastated as a result of this. Yes. Completely decimated. After the vaccine gets rolled out, it'll be a very, maybe a slow start back up to business as normal for them. Um, but yeah, uh, that's not the only weird thing. Uh, it seems like there actually was no rhyme or reason as to where Atari was or where, what was, what the Atari brand was being used for. It's because, you know, they announced hotel plans in January. Later on in January, they then announced that they were, you know, 
revisiting the roller coaster tycoon franchise, which may have piqued some, piqued a bit of interest, but then immediately lost that interest by saying they're basically turning it into a match three game for phones. So that no, no other, nothing really needs to be said about that other than like, Oh, I see. Yeah. No new roller, roller coaster tycoon game. Nothing to make it, you know, on mobile, make it accessible, do a new version or some new DLC or anything that actually might be in the traditional vein of a roller coaster tycoon game. Instead, we're just going to take that license and slap it into just a terribly generic match three puzzle game form. Yeah. Which, you know, they're all kind of exactly the same. Basically interactive loading screens between the meat of the game, which is those awful match three puzzles, gem tapping kind of things, you know, tap two to switch their place. And then when three align, they disappear and things fall down. Like we've all played at least one of those games and probably promptly under uninstalled it from our phone because it's just spamming our phone with notifications and we don't need a notification every 20 minutes to play a game that's not very fun. Yeah, exactly. And uh, now there's a roller coaster tycoon version because science. Yeah. But then when you think, okay, so they're basically just grasping at straws, figuring out what to do with the license. So they're just trying to spend as little money as possible. Then in April 2nd, not April 1st, not in April fool's announcement, April 2nd, they announced a bizarre thing called Pong Quest, which is a Pong-based RPG, which yeah. is not the not doesn't fall in the same category in my head as crappy match three phone game. To me, when you say Pong Quest, a Pong-based RPG for all of the major consoles and PC, there's probably some production value that has to go into this. Uh, yeah, uh, it's certainly more than a match three puzzle game. Um, this is like a full new game experience kind of centered around the paddle from Pong, which is yeah. a ridiculous thought. Now it's a, it's a ridiculous in the I'm intrigued kind of way. I'm not immediately dismissive of this as I was of the roller coaster tycoon, you know, match game or the Atari hotel or some of the other shit that the, uh, dead skin mess wearing husk that calls itself Atari has done through the recent years, but um, it, it came out, it came out in April on PC switch on May 7th and the Xbox one and PS4 on May 29th. And it was intriguing. Never really heard too much about it. Uh, it didn't seem to make a lot of waves or make a lot of noise uh, either critically or commercially, but still an interesting idea that uh, I'm sure uh, Atari had partners with outside their company to actually produce it because they themselves don't really produce much these days. You know, everyone who may have backed through uh, Kickstarter, backed that Atari virtual console system, uh, still waiting for that. Yep. And there was a bit of news on that front as Atari announced that uh, they had signed a partnership agreement to have blockchain-based game streaming come to the Atari VCS whenever it eventually comes out, which we don't know when. And again, just to add as much to the word salad that is game streaming, adding the word block blockchain in there as well, like virtual console system blockchain game streaming. Great. I mean, yeah. Don't I, get I, me started on the nonsense that is blockchain. I'm sure you're also in the same boat where it's like, it's literally just a buzz term to me now. I'm sure there are benefits, but 
anytime I try to read about it, it just becomes less clear what the point is. I think the uh, only buzz term missing from that word salad was crypto. Yeah. Or cryptocurrency, but yeah, that was the only thing missing. So blockchain-based game streaming for the Atari VCS. Cool. So two things that I don't understand together. Yay. (laughs) Yes. And then towards the end of the year to try and cash in on the uh, Christmas shopping season as uh, people buy uh, items and tokens for their loved ones and just people they don't wish particular harm to, uh, Atari announced a partnership with uh, the company Eunice to release the uh, Mini Pong Jr. Handheld. And it's kind of exactly as it sounds. It's called Mini Pong Jr. because it's a standalone handheld thing, device, that is with a 7.9-inch screen and two of the classic uh, uh, Pong dial controls on either end. And it's really just a scaled-down version of the Pong table arcade game. Yeah. And it's that. Now, you can play against uh, another human person, or you can play against the AI. There's 10 difficulty settings to choose from. It uh, was released, actually, through in North America through the Arcade 1-Up site. Not the ArcadeShow.com, but through Arcade 1-Up, the people who do the scale replicas of arcade cabinets and whatnot. Yeah. So they had it up, uh, and they started shipping it in late December. So uh, you'd be able to give someone a pre-order notification for it for Christmas. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and say that, hey, I know you like, uh, old Atari and whatnot, so, uh, got you the Atari or Mini Pong Jr. handheld, so cool. It's one game in this device. <laughs> yes. But, um, Atari wasn't the only company kind of struggle, or I say company again. Atari, the people who own Atari were not the only company kind of struggling to, navigate the game business in 2020 there was a far bigger far more actually successful company also trying their trying to and and ultimately failing to really get their already gigantic tendrils into the gaming business and yeah it was it was amazon yes amazon so so Atari should just kind of uh, take some solace in the fact that, hey, you know, they had some struggles through the course of the year, but, you know, Amazon, whew, if they can't get it together, I wouldn't feel so bad, Atari. Yeah. <laughs> Though, um, yeah, again, you know, like, kind of like some other news, maybe other stuff was happening in the early part of the year, but the important part that we want to talk about starts in May. So right into the pandemic times, things were kind of – that's when things sort of seem to start going sideways or look like they might have started to go sideways or I should say was looking maybe bright for Amazon, but we kind of knew right from the start it wasn't looking bright because um, they announced their first game that was supposed to be released on May 20th called Crucible. We ripped it to shreds. We thought it looked like shit. We thought it looked like a, like a PS2 era, like shovelware game. And yeah, it was supposed to be sort of like, I don't know, like a, not an MMO, but like, like a hybrid of a, uh, an MMO with a uh, character shooter. Yeah. So they released that on May 20th, but then, you know, saw how poorly it was performing. 
So on June 5th, they announced they were removing two of the game modes from Crucible. Um, like moving <laughs> basically, um, I think they were just basically keeping it to be like a closer to a MOBA featuring only, I don't know. It was, they, there was a bunch of modes and they, they reduced it down to only like, I think it was, no, I, I think it had three modes and they reduced it down to one, Yes, which I think might've been the battle Royale mode because they thought, Oh, well we can compete with a battle Royale, which can you compete against Fortnite or PUBG? Uh, no, or even Overwatch. Yeah. Even, well, Overwatch isn't really a battle royale. No, true, but still a character based shooter that has a, a very wide and very deep, uh, uh, player pool to pull from. Yes. But anyways, regardless, it, it, it's funny how quickly they started trying to put a bandaid on a thing when they saw no success as for, after basically only two weeks. And then, it kind of floundered for a while, and then eventually in October 10, they canceled Crucible. <laughs> it it stopped being a thing that you could download. Yeah, so it went from, hey, it's coming out May 20th, and it came out May 20th, to a couple weeks later, hey, we're streamlining it, so it's only do- doing this one thing now. And then come October, it's like, eh, it's done. We're tired of it. We're, we're going home. It's just not worth it. it. You know, I guess they didn't want to be that uh, sad musician in the hotel bar that's only playing for three people. Yeah. Though, sort of in between both of those events, towards the end of, you know, the Crucible saga, they also did announce that they were announcing a game streaming service of their own because it became also very kind of in vogue to have a game streaming service in 2020 when Stadia sort of started picking up legs. And, um, well, I think like Google or not Google, like, uh, PlayStation still had its, you know, PlayStation now and things like that were, you know, still showing kind of like steady progress and Amazon obviously wanted to try to get into that. So, uh, they announced their thing's going to be called Luna and it was going to be headed to a whole schwack of different things, Fire TV, PC, Mac, iPhone, iPad, and Android. Soon, though, I don't recall hearing about Luna actually coming out since then. Yeah, I don't know if it actually did. It may have entered beta, though I never came across any sort of announcement of a release date. I, if, I imagine that's uh, more just of a 2021 thing. Uh, so... Uh, it was only announced as, uh, you know, coming soon, which of course soon is a relative term. Oh, and, uh, just checking out the Amazon website. Currently, you can request early access for Luna at the current moment. Okay, so it's still pending a full release. Yeah. Okay, so probably still a 2021 thing, but offers your standard bells and whistles of being a game streaming service, only being done with the backing of AWS and all Amazon servers. Yeah, which is pretty, you know, in case you're not aware, AWS powers probably 70% of the internet. So if you're currently using websites and things on the internet, like Amazon AWS is probably the backbone for it. Yeah, uh, which is both good and bad. Yep. Uh, I mean, you know, 70%, that's the majority. Uh, that's 
I mean, if that number creeps up anymore, then it starts to become a monopoly, and then that's not good. That's a very oh, bad thing. That That is a very bad thing. But um, So there's Twitch integration into this Luna service, uh, and they also announced that they would have a curated selection of Ubisoft games as well uh, in their own Ubisoft section, which you'd also have to pay separately for to access, in addition to paying for this Luna service. So that's a kick in the teeth. Yep. So, uh, and of course those Ubisoft games will be available everywhere else as well because Ubisoft puts their games on every service possible. Yeah. So don't, don't feel like you're missing out on anything. Feel, don't feel like you're, you need to get it to play some new Ubisoft game that you can't play anywhere else. That's ridiculous. So Amazon attempting at least to uh, try and do what seemingly everyone else is doing, uh, a lot of follow the leader because they don't seem to know what to do with their uh, gaming division. First it was, hey, you know, these character shooter battle royale type games are popular. Let's do that. Okay. And that, of course, just quickly fizzled. And then, hey, everyone's doing these game streaming services. Well, why don't we have one? Look at all the servers we have access to. We should do that. Okay, Mr. Bezos and... Here we are with a uh, probably a release of Luna sometime in 2021. What will it do? What will it be its unique selling point? I shrug my shoulders to that. I have nothing to offer you. It's like, oh, it's like Google Stadia, but owned by one of the other fan companies. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, cool. Great. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, but it's got Twitch, Twitch integration. Oh, okay. That's cool and all, but, uh. So in, instead of integrating with your Google Home, it integrates with Alexa. Isn't that cool? Yeah. And, and, and different? It is different. You can pull it up on like your, your Fire TV stick or your actual Fire TV itself or. Yeah. In, instead of your Chromecast. Yeah. It's super different. Yeah. It's like so much better that way. And then that way it can uh, monitor your gaming habits and whatnot and try and sell you uh, other stuff through the Amazon like retail service and eShop. So, you know, start coming up uh, and build quite the user profile of data on you as you're using this and all the other vertically integrated Amazon services and products. Yeah. So, yeah, I personally am not going to be getting this. Uh, I, I don't know if uh, anyone else out there will. I don't know what the uh, point of it would be and what it would do so much differently than Stadia or the PlayStation uh, Now or the Xbox uh, Game Pass service. Exactly. So uh, don't feel too bad, Atari. Amazon still grasping at straws, which is kind of ridiculous considering it's Amazon they can brute force pretty much anything they wanted to. Yeah, that's the that's the secret of a lot of money, which I think actually nicely transitions into, you know, the, our first non-ludicrous topic, um, really, like, because I think for the stuff that, for this week's show, I think two of the big trends that we want to talk to are basically big gaming business deal type things that happened, and then... The things that happened, you know, there's a couple of little minor things we want to talk about at the end that still, that made us shake our head and still make us shake our head because they were kind of funny and weird. Um, so the first part here, the gaming business deals, you know, we like to kind of reflect on the year that was where, you know, lots and lots of money was being transferred around to, you know, from various entities to other various entities. And talking about Microsoft and a large amount of money and basically brute forcing your way into things, Microsoft seems to have been brute forcing themselves into, you know, owning a whole schwack of kick-ass IPs just by basically, 
spending lots and lots of money. They, you know, it all kind of started a few years ago when they bought Minecraft and it kind of snowballed from there when they bought a whole bunch of other development studios. But then the big news, I think, arguably the biggest um, monetary value news in gaming of the last year was when Microsoft purchased Bethesda and ZeniMax Media for $7.5 billion. Yeah, that's going to get you access to a whole whack of titles, properties, development studios, everything. Everything. Like, basically, like, a lot of the current gaming culture, like, like, as much as you... It's in vogue to kind of hate on Bethesda for releasing, you know, games that are kind of buggy. They kind of own a lot of the news, well not, well not the news cycle, but like the, they own a lot of real estate in people's heads with a lot of the stuff that they put out, you know, in no small part, like the Elder Scrolls, Fallout, Doom, Wolfenstein, Prey, Rage, Quake, like Starfield, which is, you know, these are all things that Microsoft now owns. And these are titles that uh, take up a good deal of space in people's minds, thoughts, uh, and the gaming news cycle. Not just now, but they have for like the past 10 years as well. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, it <laughs> Microsoft now owns them. It, it hasn't been clear if their plan was to make things like, oh, I don't know, the next Fallout game or the next Elder Scrolls game, specifically next Elder Scrolls game because it's the one that they are apparently developing, Elder Scrolls 6, whatever it's going to be, it's not clear if Microsoft's plan is to make that Xbox exclusive or if they're going to, you know, still have the Minecraft approach with this stuff where they become just this massive publisher of things where they'll release it on everything and still just reap all the benefits for it. My guess is the latter and not the former because Microsoft wouldn't spend $7.5 billion on something if they didn't want to get it back. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Yeah. And all we really know in that, uh, regard, uh, to, I guess these games being released multi-platform is that, uh, Phil Spencer spoke to Bloomberg around Bloomberg news around the time this deal was announced and said that, uh, outside of the games, Deathloop and Ghostwire Tokyo, uh, which have already like they're, they already had deals with some element of timed exclusivity on the PS5, Beyond those, uh, they will take, you know, whatever Bethesda, ID Software, any title, you know, that comes forward after those two, uh, they will be released on Xbox and PC, and then other consoles will be on a, quote, case-by-case basis. So something big, like the next Elder Scrolls, like the next Fallout, will, I'm sure, going will appear on the next PlayStation, PS5, whatever other system, just to, of course, recoup, recoup the... Development costs, the cost of acquisition, things of that nature. But maybe some smaller titles I can see Microsoft keeping just to them. Yeah, maybe. So the big ones, yeah, I mean, those are going to cost the most to make. You need to spread them out as much as you can in order to uh, make the monies back. But uh, smaller ones, sure, keep them in-house. Uh, Alternatively, I could also see the opposite. I could, I can see them opening everything up, though. Given, you know, they're, I mean, yeah, they also seem to like to support indie game makers as much as possible. And a good way to support an indie game maker is to open them up to the widest um, 
audience possible, right? So that is a fair point, and I can, uh, yeah, I can see that being a, a possibility as well. Uh, we don't really know because we don't really see big mergers and acquisitions like this in the gaming space all that often. No, we don't. Although Sony, I guess, uh, uh, a little bit before that, uh, they didn't make an acquisition, although they kind of planted a seed for maybe a later acquisition, although it would cost them a whole lot more than $7 billion. Uh, they, in July, announced that they had made a, quote, strategic investment in Epic Games. You know, the company we spoke about last week, uh, how they're picking a fight with Apple to bring down their monopolistic uh, app store practices. Well, Sony is one of the companies that has a stake in Epic Games. Now, that being said, it's a very small stake. Yeah, so, well, first of all, we should say how much they put in. It was $250 million of a stake. That is a lot of money, and you'd think that would get you a pretty good-sized chunk of something, you know, anything. That's $250 million. That's a quarter of a billion dollars. Yes, and what that netted them is a 1.4% minority stake in Epic Games. That is not a lot of anything. So basically Epic Games had done a uh, round of funding, I guess, through the spring and into the summer, uh, in closing deals in the summer, uh, with a bunch of uh, other people investing, a bunch of other companies, entities, uh, equity firms, that kind of thing, Sony being one of them, putting in $250 million, getting a 1.4% stake. But when it was all said and done... Basically, that uh, caused Epic Games to have an ev- an evaluation of $17.86 billion. Yeah. So the loan, you know, still the main shareholder, the majority shareholder is still Tim Sweeney, but Sony's in there. A lot of other institutions are in there. Uh, Tencent, who is uh, the giant tech company from China, they bought a 40% stake in 2012 for a good $330 million. So that's um, a good return on investment already. Yeah, that's a good return for them. I mean, if if Sony currently put $250 million in for a 1% stake and they put $330 million in for a 40% stake, their 40% stake is now worth more than $330 million. <laughs> Yes, I'm inclined to agree, uh, without even attempting any back of the envelope, uh, math here. Good God. So, uh, maybe it was with this funding in place that, uh, really gave, uh, Epic Games the gumption to be like, okay, we're good. Now we can take on Apple. Yeah. That, that was their pitch to investors during all these funding, uh, meetings and whatnot. Like, oh, what are you going to do with the money and what do you need it for? We want to sue the pants off of Apple. <laughs> which I'm sure their investors are maybe not super happy about. There was a lot of, uh, a lot of humming, hawing and awkwardly tugging on their shirt collars. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, so what Sony will get for that stake remains to be seen, but they called it strategic. And, uh, at the time said it would allow the company to quote, explore opportunities for further collaborate collaboration with Epic to delight and bring value to consumers and the industry at large, not only in games, but also access the rapidly evolving digital entertainment landscape End quote. So that is a good nothing blurb right there. Yes. But um, speaking of big deals on the software side of things, uh, Nintendo, as we speak of stories involving the big three, uh, had one of the biggest titles of the year and also in their history released this year or this past year. Yeah. And I don't think it was one that they were even close to expecting to do what it did. 
Uh, no, and I dare say nobody expected it to do what it did, because back in March, specifically on March 20th, that is when Animal Crossing New Horizons was released for the Switch, which was basically right around the time that we here in North America started to get locked down and actually experienced the uh, first wave in earnest of the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah. And that was... It was a rare moment in video games where there was the right game for the right time. Yeah, that's basically, this is, if there was a class taught on this type of thing, this game I think would be part of the upfront course material of like, right place, right time, exactly like how the stars align, this is what it is. Just, I don't know what it is, I, when I talked about it back, you know, in April, I think, when we were first talking about this, it's kind of like a meditative experience and... I think that's really just what people needed from the, you know, as a break from the pandemic, because, you know, it's a stressful time, you know, the, the whole having to, you know, shelter in place, whatever you want to call it. It's, it's stressful. It's not fun. It's, you know, everything kind of just sucks. So, um, yeah, like just, uh, any anything to take your mind off of that is good, and this game definitely does that. It's very calming, very soothing, slow paced. It's it's fun. It's very like you might not understand what the appeal is. It's like you're just literally just paying off a debt and like fishing and collecting wood and stuff. Like, but it's it's surprisingly relaxing and kind of fun. So you're doing simple, straightforward tasks um, that don't have a lot of stress attached to them. Like there's, there's very low stakes involved in animal crossing. Yeah, exactly. Like it's, it's not a life or death scenario, like say a call of duty is or whatnot, or you have to do X, Y, or Z in this game. Otherwise the bomb explodes. No, you go, you plant your garden, you tend to your garden, you collect some bugs, dig for some fossils. And you just have a very, very pleasant experience playing the game. It's, it's digital gardening. Exactly. Especially at a time in March when you maybe couldn't go outside because, well, it was too cold to plant anything or do anything. So Animal Crossing, when uh, basically when this first month of release, had the third best launch for a Nintendo game ever, uh, putting it behind the likes of Smash Brothers Ultimate for the Switch and also Smash Brothers Brawl for the Wii, which literally nothing... No one would have ever predicted that. But not only did it have the best or third best launch for a Nintendo title ever, it also, in the span of uh, like six, seven months, became the second best selling title for the Switch ever. So in November, Nintendo released an update to investors on its uh, financial forecasts and how it was doing. And Animal Crossing, to that point, in November, or basically up to October numbers, had sold 26.04 million copies. Yeah, which I believe is only only surpassed by Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. Uh, yes, uh, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, still at that time, the top title holder moving or selling 28.99 million copies. So look at that. So Mario Kart 8 Deluxe was a basically launch title for the Switch back in 2017, I think April 2017, uh, and needed about like three years to sell that many millions of copies. Animal Crossing needed seven months. Yeah. 
So I dare say it's entirely possible that Animal Crossing, when we get year-end numbers, moves ahead of Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. And maybe sells 28, 29, maybe 30 million copies in one, in one year. Yeah. Um, but I think no matter what happens, you know, Nintendo, I think, may want to reconsider what they plan out to be maybe their major tentpole releases or like what they consider to be their top franchises now. Since I'm sure they thought before, oh, it's Mario, it's Zelda, it's maybe, you know, things involving characters like that. Maybe Smash is a thing, whatever. Now they're probably going to pay a little bit more serious mind to Animal Crossing in the future. Absolutely. And that is not something you and I ever thought would happen because prior to the, to 2020, I would have regarded Animal Crossing as like maybe a C list franchise for Nintendo. Yeah. Not to, that's not any sort of knock against its quality or anything, but in terms of popularity, yeah, like it's not, it didn't seem like it would be a title that would build this much hype, but now that people have kind of got the needle in their arm, I think they're going to want more, so. And considering prior to this, prior to New Horizons on the Switch, the last uh, Animal Crossing game was on the 3DS, came out in 2013, it sold about 12, 12 and a half million copies. Cool, okay, that's pretty good. I mean, Animal Crossing was has normally been kind of a handheld uh, you know, title for Nintendo, but no, now, now it's mainline. It is one of the cash cows, if not the cash cow for Nintendo right now. But hey, speaking of the 3DS. Yeah, the 3DS is now officially a thing of the past. Uh, yes, I was trying to think of a, uh, a way to tie in 3DS with the uh, more like 3BS, but <laughs> there's, there's no good way to, Work in the name as being something from yesteryear and no longer in existence. Uh, the news officially coming down in September when uh, Nintendo was asked questions about production of the 3DS by GamesIndustry.biz. And they confirmed that, yes, indeed, the 3DS, not the 3BS, the 3DS uh, ended production earlier in the year. So it uh, is officially Dunsky. And for the first time, basically since the era of the NES, the early part of the uh, NES, uh, Nintendo is just back to making one machine and one machine alone. Yeah. And so. that machine obviously is the Switch, which I've said from day one has some great overlap with what the 3DS does because, you know, in traditional Nintendo terms, they've always kind of had a home console and a uh, on-the-go console, like a pocket handheld thing. The Switch now covers both, so... Do you really need both anymore? Uh, obviously not, but Nintendo was adamant they would uh, keep it going. That lasted a couple of years. I mean, it lasted three years, which is still pretty good. Yeah. Uh, the 3DS in total sold about uh, 75.9 million units wor- uh, worldwide, uh, which is pretty good, though still down as a number compared to what the uh, DS family did and also down compared to what the Game Boy and Game Boy Advance systems did. So um, the 3DS wasn't much of uh an improvement basically it's was very much from that era when everyone every tech company was thinking that oh 3d is the wave of the entertainment future which of course yeah. it proved not to be although glasses free 3d was a was a neat parlor trick yeah no I, I agree because the the glasses is always kind of like the worst part about the 3d experience 
And uh, as, of course, we know from back in the days when there would be 3D movies in theaters uh, that we'd go to see other, you know, see them with uh, with other people in the theaters. It, you know, those old bygone times. Yeah. So the 3DS is gone. And also, it appears that Nintendo's uh, efforts for mobile gaming uh, might be on the outs as well. The news, uh, that news coming out in June when Bloomberg reported that uh, Nintendo apparently is stepping away from the uh, their slate of mobile games or just having more mobile games come down the pipeline because they just never really performed financially up to expectations. And also the Switch is still doing gangbusters, especially with something like Animal Crossing. Yeah. So they don't really need that uh, stream of revenue, which proved to be not much of a stream of revenue. No, yeah, so Nintendo, I think, towards, you know, mid middle of the year, they decided to kind of refocus, it seems, and, you know, as they probably should. I mean, what they do well is innovative technology and, you know, games that use that innovative technology well. That's sort of what they've always been doing, right? It's true, and it's why they uh, really will never port or have their games on other platforms. I mean, in addition to the fact that then you are... uh I mean, uh, de-emphasizing the importance of the Nintendo machines, but they've always viewed the software and the hardware as being hand-in-hand, uh, hand, working together to create an entertainment experience. Yeah, exactly. So Nintendo streamlining, which is good, uh, down to just the Switch, so all their dev teams will focus on Switch titles, which is good, uh, getting out of the mobile game experience, which is good, and then they can just uh, sit back and uh, reap whatever monies that DNA makes as a company because they have like a 5 or 10% ownership stake. So, hey, they can get whatever with uh, basically no liability. But uh, uh, also in the vein of business deals, this one, uh, this last one, we're going to kind of mentioned here, caught a lot of people by surprise. The news coming out in March that 2K Games had signed a deal with the NFL to once again produce NFL games for various platforms. And there was much rejoicing? Uh, there was much rejoicing since uh, it's been Madden and only Madden in the NFL game space for about the last 15 years. So, yeah, I mean, competition's always a good thing. Competition is a good thing. Now, this should be qualified by the fact that uh, the games that 2K Sports will be producing are not simulation games. Uh, no. no, that is the exclusive domain still of uh, EA Sports and the Madden franchise. So if you enjoyed NFL 2K back in the day, that is not going to be a thing. Uh, though I'm sure 2K Sports will find other avenues to bring the NFL experience into their own unique video games. Maybe they go arcadey and have new versions of Blitz or something like that. I mean, that would be fun, right? Like, Oh, those old Blitz games were a hoot. Yeah. Uh, so, and now at that time, also, at least I, when the news came out in March, kind of wondered if uh, part of the reason the NFL signed this deal was to try and exert some leverage over EA and try and get a better sweetheart deal uh, for the rights to uh, produce simulation games and uh, or if maybe there would be some competition uh, that competition was, or theory was squashed a couple weeks later when uh, the NFL and the NFL Players Association announced a new deal with E or with Electronic Arts to produce Madden games that I think was for a crazy amount of money like yeah. it was in the billions I think 
yeah, which I'm not, uh, I wouldn't be surprised at that. I mean, the NFL itself is kind of like a gangbusters business. It is a license to print money. Everything they touch seems to work and has followers and does very well, so that's fine. So uh, the first title from this uh, partnership between 2K and the NFL is due to launch sometime in this year of 2021. Apparently, they already have multiple projects underway, but what form those will take, I don't know since, uh, again, nothing's been announced. It's not going to be a simulation game. Are they going to try and produce games aimed at a younger audience for kids? Maybe have games that appeal to women? Uh, maybe try and expand the audience for NFL games beyond just the hardcore Madden bro demographic? Uh, I don't know. We don't really know, but uh, it's surprising to see that 2K Sports getting back into the uh, NFL market once again. But hey, competition, always good. And something beyond just a Madden game might bring more people to the table because... I know I'm not interested in playing those Madden games at all. No, I mean, that's, I think, the general problem with a lot of those games, too. Not just the simulation aspect, but there's no, like, I mean, I'm going to say this, you know, in a very, like, kind of stepping back and looking at it 10,000 feet view kind of style. Yes, there's innovation from game to game, but generally, it's the same kind of game. Like, you know kind of what to expect when you're looking at a Madden game, and it's basically, like... To me, as someone that's not super into it, there's not really a benefit to me buying a new Madden game once, like more frequently than once every what five, ten years, other than like roster changes and maybe minor quality of life improvements for gameplay. But really, like at its core, it's kind of not something that's different. Like it's not a new take on playing football. There's no there's no zinger that's going to hook you in for some different reason every year. So, and that's sort of remained unchanged for the last 15, 20 years, really? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if you're a fan of Madden, all you really realistically need is just one version and one copy of a Madden game on the system you're playing at that time. Yeah. And then you just download updates uh, as you need and whatnot, because the fundamentals of the game don't change, haven't changed. It's There's tweaks, uh, maybe some attempts at new ideas or whatnot. But yeah, it's uh, not really that different as a game. It, I mean, the fundamentals are still, it's an NFL simulation game. That, yeah. that That's it. It always has been, always will be. It's just more intense. And I guess kind of for me, um, as someone who's not into it, more unwieldy and just more intimidating to get into. Yeah. And it's, I think that that's sort of like the direction that a lot of the EA games kind of went in. Like the last NF, an NHL game that I played was NHL 14. And the reason why I even picked that one up was because they had the anniversary mode that was closer to the you know, the ones from when I was a small child, like the NHL 95 style of gameplay. And if I'm being honest, that was the mode of the game that I played more the most when I was playing it for a while there, because the other modes were just kind of too complicated. Like they had a career mode, which was really hard to kind of, you know, wrap my head around what I was supposed to be doing, like right down to the, the the weird realism that they put into that mode, I, I mean, I appreciate it, but it seemed a little bit surreal, like when you're basically living your life as this character that you've created, right down to the line changes. Like you have to wait in real time 
for it, for your turn to play on the ice, like in the, in the book, on the bench. Like, like I can appreciate the realism, but is this what I want out of a fun game to just kind of wait while I'm you know, wait to be called? <laughs> you know, like it's weird. Yeah. It's so real. You have to wait for your turn to play a video yeah. game. Yeah, exactly. But you know, it, it I don't want to make it seem like we're shitting on, you know, EA games or Madden in particular. Like they are kind of incredible feats of engineering to the point where, you know, every year we like to kind of look forward to the Madden prediction because their simulation is so good that it's sort of like better than any pundit. And it, it's, it's been what, 70% accurate in the last 10 years of who's going to win the Super Bowl? Uh, I think that's uh, about right. And there have been a couple years in there in that sample size where it was basically spot on in a number of different aspects that it was kind of unsettling. Yeah. So, yeah. And I, I think actually just on this Madden note, it's, it's sort of a, an interesting and good way to bring us into our next and last category that we're going to be talking about here for this last, uh, year in review show, which is our, you know, the potpourri, which, or, you know, for those of you that don't watch Jeopardy or don't know what that word means, it's, uh, it's miscellaneous, miscellaneous, but this year we're kind of focusing mostly on the things that kind of made us like turn our head and go, what? (laughs) And, um, the first one, it's related to Madden. And I think this is maybe, it could have been a ludicrous, I think it was a ludicrous lead off the week we talked about it, but you know, it's not, it didn't fit in any of our ludicrous topics, but if, if we're doing a mini arcade starting right now, this is the ludicrous lead off. Yes. Uh, this is a new episode of the arcade tucked inside another episode of the arcade. We've gone meta. Yes. So our first of four ludicrous lead offs this week came from. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, basically these are just our favorite ludicrous leadoffs. I think it's a good way of uh putting it. Yeah, uh yeah, the ones that are silly, lighthearted, you you likely forgot or missed entirely and weren't uh uh with any sort of depressing element to them as well, but uh this one Madden Bowl related came in May. Uh this one was the story of how uh Rydell quote unquote joke Brito won the 2020 Madden Bowl uh, by managing to not ever throw a pass or ever actually use a quarterback. Yeah, it's... He basically threw football strategy completely out the window (laughs) and did, like, a crazy thing. Uh, He lined up... uh, Well, he, he basically put a, a punter in the way of the quarterback spot and managed to shut out his opponent 17-0. And the way he did that is he built his team. I mean, the rules of the Madden Bowl, he built a team under a salary cap structure and he decided to spend basically all his money on defense. Yeah. His, like just super overpowering the offensive line and just neglecting into, and by doing so, he, you know, because quarterbacks are expensive. 
Oh yeah, that is a premier position in the NFL. The quarterbacks are uh basically always the highest paid position in real life, in real life NFL. And you would think, okay, you have your pick of the litter in this salary cap structure. Who are you going to take? And then everyone else in the other positions follows as a result of that. But no, no, this uh, Rydell Joe Brito just kind of went with a schlub nobody Hammond Egger as his, <laughs> as his quarterback who basically cost him 10 cents and then yeah, spent he- all his money in every other like major defensive position and probably offensive line as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I believe he, he used the punter Tress Way in the quarterback spot, and he shut out his opponent 17-0, not by throwing passes, but just by running his way to victory. Yeah, like, so you can get by basically with a uh, a good running back who will just uh, plow through your opposing team defense, and then if your your own defense is just spectacular, what's the other person to do? Yeah. So I think it's really impressive that uh, Rydell Joe Brito here, A, not only one using the strategy, but B, cast a shutout. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is the finals of Madden Bowl. The person you're playing obviously knows their shit to reach that point, and they got nothing on you. Yeah, because you're using such a radical new crazy strategy in this game. Like... I'm actually a little bit surprised that we didn't hear more about this strategy in real life because, <laughs> because yeah, it's one of those things that works in the video games, maybe because he's kind of going against the system, but why wouldn't that work in real life? I mean, it certainly would be a, a good way to get some uh, different looks and get people talking and throw your opponent off their game plan entirely. Yeah, like if you basically don't have a quarterback... Like, if you just basically have a punter in place who just always hands it off to a running back or something, and you have an amazing defensive section, why wouldn't that work as, like, a valid football strategy? Like, it seems like, it seems like, you know, as much as football strategy has been, you know, it's a thing, like, I'm not disparaging football strategy, like, it's... It's got 60 plus, well, more than 60 plus years of history. It's got, like, what, 100 years of history behind it or something, so... So there's, you know, I'm sure people have people far smarter in with the game than I have. I am, you know, probably wrote books on this stuff before. But has there been a book written about doing something wacky like this? Uh, Not that I'm aware of. So perhaps this will, you know, at the very least, I'm sure this will inspire other Madden players to uh, see if they can follow suit and see if this particular approach works for them uh, in future Madden Bowls and just other future esports competitions like this. Uh, so it's one way to go about it and actually have success. But there are other ways to go about your uh, esports and have not just uh, no success, but also uh, make yourself uh, the laughingstock of the gaming community. And this next story kind of uh, is in that vein. It came out a couple days after uh, the news broke of Rydell Joke Brito taking the very unique approach to having success in the finals of Madden Bowl. Of course, with the lockdown and uh, in the first wave and pandemic, uh, pretty much all sports ground to a halt and everything was just cast to esports virtual competitions, uh, uh, race car uh, racing included or Formula One racing included. And so in May, there was a race that was uh, held virtually and uh, racer Daniel Apt was one of the participants in this race. 
and was later found out to actually not be one of the participants in this race. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, he was a, tw- in case you're not aware of who he is, uh, he was a 27 year old, or I'm not saying was like he died or anything. <laughs> he is, he is a 27 year old at the time. Maybe he's 28 now. I'm not sure when his birthday is, but 27 at the time year old German racer sponsored by Audi. Um, yeah, professional race car driver. Um, yeah, but you know, he, he was sponsored by Audi to basically take place in an esports competition where real drivers, real, real race drivers were supposed to be playing, you know, um, in this virtual race, in this virtual race. But what he did was he hired an esports player to falsely compete in him in this virtual race and he was found out. <laughs> Yeah, so the person he hired uh, is a pro gamer by the name of Lorenz Herzing, who uh, did the race. Uh, I think he had, they had some level of, of success with this, uh, but was eventually found out uh, uh, when Mercedes driver Stoffel Van Doorn, uh who came second during the race in question, stated on their own Twitch stream that they suspected uh, Daniel Apt of having another player race for them during this race. Uh, this was also supported in accusation supported by two-time Formula E champion Jean-Eric Vernier. And so kind of what happened was that Daniel Apt did not have his camera on himself uh, when this race was happening. So his screen was just black, so no one else could tell it was him. And then I think there may have been times where other racers were talking to him just as the race is happening. And any responses given did not did not actually sound like Daniel Apt. Yeah. And then eventually it came out after, after some investigation that no, it was someone else entirely. And so Daniel Lapt, uh, it's not as though this was a lighthearted thing and he just got away scot free. He was ordered to pay 10,000 euros or about $11,000 US as a fine to a charity for illegally hiring this esports player to compete under their name. Um, and then Lorenz Herzing there was also. Uh, disqualified from all future rounds of another racing series called the Challenge Grid. So there was repercussions for both of them for doing this. Uh, yeah. Uh, at the time when this uh, punishment was handed down, Daniel Apt said, quote, I did not take it as seriously as I should have. I'm especially sorry about this because I know how much work has gone into this project on the part of the Formula E organization. I'm aware that my offense has a bitter aftertaste, but it was never meant with any bad intention, end quote. So going to say Daniel Apt just kind of didn't really care and thought, eh, whatever, not worth my time. I'd rather go drive on the Autobahn or something. Yes. As one is wont to do over there in Germany. Exactly. If you have the Autobahn, you've got to make use of it. Otherwise, you lose the Autobahn. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's, I think, how that works. Yes. Having never driven on the Autobahn myself, I cannot say with certainty, but that's my impression, my general impression of the German Autobahn. Use it or lose it. Yeah. I've only ever been a passenger in a car that was on the Autobahn once, well, once, a few times over the course of a couple weeks. And um, it was a stressful experience just even being a passenger when you go any in any lane that's not the far right lane. Because it's hilariously, it's hilarious how fast someone will be right on your ass and then right, <laughs> and then getting around you like you're standing still, despite the fact that you're going 100 kilometers an hour. Yeah, the Autobahn is intense, and it's not for the uh, faint of heart. No. 
So uh, Daniel Apt obviously wanted to go drive a real car as opposed to a virtual car at that point. So he got the eSports driver to do it for him, and that just made us shake our heads. Uh, as did this next story from earlier in the year in March, when uh, it was kind of announced that uh, players of Dead or Alive 6 would have the option uh, for enhanced character customization, but at a cost for you see if you wanted to actually change the hair color on your character in Dead or Alive 6, you're going to have to pay up. There is an actual financial cost to that maneuver, to that tactic, or not tactic, to that desire of changing your character's hair color. Which is the dumbest thing I can think of. Basically the dumbest microtransaction since horse armor. Yes, but also it's it's so much more dumb than horse armor. At least if you buy horse armor... It's connected to your account online so that you can always get your horse armor again. The dead or alive hair color, they, they, they store the change in your save data. And then if you clear your save data, it's gone. So yes, you potentially would lose that and lose any sort of uh, record of transaction. Hooray. So the, the mechanism by which this was done in dead or alive six was through the use of premium tickets and essentially paywall that you need to go beyond in order to change your character's hair color. And so you would have to buy them and you could only buy, you know, a minimum of two that costs $2. So a dollar per ticket, or you could even buy a bundle of 10 for 10 bucks, 20 for 20 bucks, 50 for $45. Uh, so yeah, even if you wanted to change your character's hair color at least once, $2. And I might be wrong, but I seem to be remembering that these premium tickets only purpose was also to change hair color. Uh, may have been. They may have expanded the use of them later on, but uh, certainly in that time, yes, they were basically just good for changing the hair color. So you had to pay to change hair color. And you couldn't just buy one. You had to buy a minimum of two. So that way you could change it. But if you didn't like it, then you could use another ticket and change it back. Or change it to something else. Yes, or change it to something else. And then clear your save data just to get <laughs> it back. So, yeah, um, amidst all the pandemic, some people were doing stupid things such as that. Uh, but our last of the, you know, kind of potpourri miscellaneous stories that really made us shake our head was kind of before the pandemic really took hold in earnest in North America and kind of circles around uh, to the same theme as we started the show with nostalgia, 90s nostalgia. Yeah. Now, admittedly, I'd be curious to see, like, I think, I think our general consensus when this one came out was it would be neat to see what the implementation looks like, but I think neither one of us would want to actually buy any of these because we remember how actually shitty they were. I believe that's an accurate assessment. Yeah. And what we're talking, the, the, what they were is what we're talking about were those Tiger Electronics handheld LCD games. They were basically, Calculator graphics branded with, you know, whatever pop culture thing at the time, Batman, The Simpsons, Flintstones, even other more like robust video games. You get like Sonic the Hedgehog things, you get Mario things, you get Donkey Kong things, but they, if you don't know what this is, consider yourself, you know, too lucky because you're too young to remember such crappy technology. Um, but back in the nineties, they were everywhere and there was so many of them. Yes. Um, these, yeah, <laughs> they were basically, yeah, like I said, ca calculator graphics, like 
if you've never used a calculator before, which is actually maybe a possibility now given the proliferation of smartphones and stuff, but the LCD display on calculator, if you don't know how it works, it's basically like you need a small amount of electrical current to go through a part of the screen to make a predefined shape show up on the screen. So in the case of calculators, or it's kind of like digital clocks. So like you have all of the different parts of these numbers. So like you could like just remove, like when they're all on, it looks like kind of blocks of nothing, but then you remove parts to make, you know, the different shapes, like, you know, the different numbers appear. But in this case, instead of numbers, they would be like your characters in this one spot, your characters in this other spot, or like if it was, if it was like a tennis game, you might be, cycling between three or four different spots on the screen while the ball is like in one spot or another spot. So basically there's only like a matter of, well, I mean, there's usually like a lot of different combinations of things on the screen, but when it ultimately comes down to it, there's basically like five or six relevant frames of gameplay (laughs) that you have to kind of worry about. It's true. And the background never changed either. No. So whether or not that was actually relevant to the quote unquote level you were playing didn't matter. That's just what was, what was happening. They were basically the Tiger Electronics version of Game and Watch games. Yes, exactly. And for some reason, Hasbro, who I believe have the license to Tiger Electronics properties, decided to bring them back. And it was in February that they announced that they were going to bring back some of them. The initial line would be four of the old Tiger Electronics games would be brought back. Uh, the four titles included in there would be Sonic the Hedgehog 3, which I'll let your brain try and process for a minute, Disney's Little Mermaid, Marvel X-Men Project X, and Transformers Generation 2. Uh, they were made available for pre-order from GameStop, uh, and they were going to cost about $15 US each. And they were essentially replicas of the uh, original ones with some updated designs, but fundamentally, they were still the original ones. I mean, they were still going to have the, you know, handful of frames of animation, very, very simple gameplay, um, packaging, uh, artwork and whatnot. Yeah, same deal. They were going to be the same deal as the, uh, as the old Tiger Electronics games from the 90s. And I don't think we understood why, and even looking back now, I don't know if we understand why. I mean, they're kind of a neat thing. They're entirely harmless, but why? Why? Yeah. So a new generation can experience a terrible game experience. Yeah. I I definitely remember basically being disappointed once where I remember someone was saying, oh, I had the new Simpsons video game. And I was like, cool, can I try it? And then meeting someone, you know, after school or whatever, where they were able to kind of show me. And then my heart, I remember my heart sinking when they brought one of those Tiger Electronics things out of their bag. I'm like, oh, you don't have a video game. You just have one of those crappy, like, (laughs) Tiger Electronics things. So it's like not really a video game. It's just sort of like a, a calculator game or whatever you want to call it. Way to make them feel bad. I mean, I didn't say that, obviously. <laughs> like, I still like, oh, cool. Yep. Sounds good. Oh, this is fun. Okay. I got to go. Bye. <laughs> We're going to play a real video game now because I have a Nintendo. So that was just the first wave of those, uh, 
of Tiger Electronics handhelds uh, with four of them in there. Again, Sonic the Hedgehog 3, a video game that already existed on the Sega Genesis, was one of these Tiger Electronics handheld games. <laughs> yep. And it wasn't good. It was basically uh, just Sonic, I guess, side-scrolling through a level. Maybe you got to uh, select a character of either Sonic or Knuckles, or maybe even Tails. But, yeah, it certainly would not be Sonic the Hedgehog 3. And I'm sure it happened in the 90s, where if you were a kid asking for Sonic 3 for Christmas, but never specified, (laughs) you may have ended up with this terrible Tiger Electronics handheld version. Yep. I know I certainly uh, had a couple of them back from that time. I had a, uh, I had one that was based on Independence Day. <laughs> yep. And it was a shooting gallery game where it had like a little plastic gun and a, uh, uh, you know, had a base that you could flip out so it would kind of stand up and then it would kind of read the uh, blaster position and you'd shoot one of the four or five different uh, enemy ships or alien ships on the screen and, I recall it never really working that properly. <laughs> yep. And I actually still have some of the, uh, I think I have two or three of the old Ninja Turtles Tiger Electronics games. Ah, uh, yes. I do remember those as well. Yes. I actually still have them, and I'm sure if I was to put batteries in, they'd fire right up, and I'd enjoy all of these six frames of action. Yeah, exactly. Or I think one stage is basically just, uh, you know, your your turtle, Raphael, Donatello, whomever, with their arm at a uh, different angle as you try and swat away mousers, and uh, that would be on the ground or in the air, and they'd yes. come and attack you. <laughs> yep. So, if that sounds like a terrible gameplay experience, yes, you're correct, they were. <laughs> yeah, they, they were bad. Uh, they were- I don't actually know how they were able to get as popular as they did. Maybe it was just the fact that, you know, technology wasn't, well, mobile, mobile game technology maybe wasn't as prolific as it is now. And, you know, to get your fix of whatever video game on the go might've been a little bit prohibitively expensive, maybe for the game boy or the game gear or whatever at the time. So this was oftentimes a very viable, cheap way of maybe getting, or fooling yourself into thinking you're playing video games on the go, even if it was not really close to the same thing. Absolutely. Or if, uh, you know, you kept asking for a Game Boy for Christmas, but never uh, actually got one, and your parents, your grandparents, or whomever thought, oh, this will be a, uh, you know, good thing in place, or maybe you got it from another kid in your class at your birthday party. <laughs> yes. Because I'm sure that happened to a lot of us. <laughs> yep. But, uh, yeah, so Hasbro brought those back. As we sit here now, looking back, uh, on these in early, in the first half still of 2021, no idea why. I have no better understanding of the reason, uh, behind those games being brought back now than I did at the time. And just like the kids and their, uh, desire and joy of sea shanties, I cannot understand that either. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, we'll, we'll see what 2021 brings. Maybe it'll be, Eventually, less crazy and less hard to understand. Man, I, if that happens, I don't know if I'd understand things then either. That Yeah, that's true. It's like, oh, I, I can exist, but not in a state of perpetual dread or panic? Like, what's this? <laughs> oh, man. Wait, I can breathe? I can I can go and see people? No. No way. I, we, we can go to... 
go to a restaurant. We can we can we can go on a plane and go to a place. Whoa, what? Whoa, 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 whoa! Planes, they're still a thing. <laughs> Are you sure their flying apparatus wasn't affected by COVID somehow? <laughs> Did, didn't it like eat away at the bolts of the plane? Are we sure they're still safe? I mean, you're right. We're not sure. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, good. Something else to worry about. Perfect. (laughs) Excellent. As a sound of me wiping my hands, my job here is done. (laughs) Oh, man. But uh, also done not only my job here and giving you something new to worry about, but also uh, our job on this week's edition of the Arcade as we have kind of run through the last of our topics to uh, catch up, reminisce, and have our say on from the dumpster fire year that was 2020, the year of our Dark Lord. It is now officially done in the books, so you out there may now properly go forward and embrace all that comes your way in the year 2021. Uh, we hope uh, you enjoyed it. Uh, hope we enjoyed it as well. It's always a crapshoot. Never sure how these things are going to turn out. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. I, I hope we enjoyed that. <laughs> uh, if uh, we missed anything that you thought we should talk about or bared mentioning from 2020, it's entirely possible we missed something, forgot something, glossed over something. Uh, have your say. Let us know. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up through social media. We are on Twitter at the arcade show. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash the arcade show. And if you haven't done so already, there's still time to fulfill your New Year's resolution of giving us a rating or a review on iTunes or perhaps even in the Google Podcast Store. Our pages on both of those uh, platforms can be found directly on the links of uh, on our homepage of the arcade show.com. So that about that about fully wraps up 2020. That's that's all of 2020 done. Yes put into a nice little package never to be opened again (laughs) (laughs) yes we will call it pandora's box (laughs) so uh yeah i think that's a a nice tidy bow we've put on everything it's not the nicest bow but you know whatever it was it was an after christmas sale it's a functional bow not a decorative bow (laughs) yes it's a structural bow (laughs) it's a load-bearing bow Yes. So uh, that about wraps us up for this week. We thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. And until next time, good night. Good night. (laughs) 